You're listening to The Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half an hour or so, stop it Ollie, I haven't even started yet, we, we're going to be talking about all things food and drink. I'm joined by my fellow naughty presenter, Ollie Lloyd, head of client at Hearst Publications and founder of Great British Chefs. Hello. Hello. They've got this really full table in front of us. I know, but we've got, we've got a full table of stuff yeah. that we're not used to looking at. No, I know, I know. We're used to having like drinks and food and, and, and water. I'm also joined by Holly Shackleton, who is editor of Speciality Food magazine. Hi. We've not normally got stuff like this in front of us, have we? No. No. It's an adventure. And an, uh, it's a real adventure. Um, I've got three guests today. Uh, the first is Sam Bilton, freelance food historian. Hi, Sam. Hello. Because you're a food historian, I thought you like wrote loads of books and I wasn't expecting you to bring grub in. Really? Okay. Yes. Um, well, as well as being a food historian, I run a supper club. So I, I spend ah. a lot of time cooking historical food as well as writing about it. Cooking historical food. Well, this should be interesting. Um, and to share in our historical food, um, I've got Zaren Wilson. Hello, Zaren. Hello. And you you write an amazing blog uh, called Bitten and Written. Thank you. That's very kind. It's, it's a little bit of an angry blog sometimes. Um, less angry bit. than most, I would say. Um, yeah, yeah it, I'm mostly about championing the good stuff. You um, are, if indeed. I don't like restaurants, I usually don't them. write about that. That is the oh, okay. right approach. That is the right approach. Yeah. Okay. So good. Uh, until someone pays me to write in a newspaper, then uh, then I okay. can be critical in that sense. But, uh, and the reason why I invited you on the program is because um, you were the winner of the food blog of the year for the Guild of Fine Food Writers. Yes, Guild of Food Writers. Yes, you? was uh, very chuffed about that. Yeah, um, very very kind award. Food Talk sponsored that award. You did. Because uh, we like a good bit of writing, don't we, Holly? We sure do. We sure do. Um, and also, um, Paul Collins of Exbury. Hello. Nobody will ever know what Exbury is if they haven't come across you before. Um, and they're not in the industry because your, your, your sort of company makes all that stuff work underneath without people yes. knowing. So we're the secret behind all the nice, colourful, healthy and natural food and drink that you would see in the supermarket. Coloured with fruits and vegetables. Yeah. So, if you are processing food, sometimes you use the, you lose the colour of it, and therefore some people use um, unnatural things to, to to sort of bring it back to where it started. Whereas your company um, create the most amazing colours, which yes. I've seen, um, but from natural ingredients. Yes, exactly. So when the people, you know, as you say, would uh, lose the colour in their processing, we do exactly the opposite. We retain the colour in our processing to then give this it's back to the food and drink to make it look so Instagrammable. I want to know, know all about that, don't you? We've never done it. Instagrammable. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got filters for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. So, Sam, let us start with you. Um, freelance food historian. So, first of all, what is your favourite period? Oh, uh, you get food. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> you get, I get asked that all the Come time. Come on. Um, well, Don't say the 1970s, please. No, although I, I think they get a bit of a, a, yeah. a tough rap, really. Um, but actually, I love spices. So I guess I can't really pinpoint an exact period, but I do like Roman food, and I have brought a Roman dish for you to try and medieval food. And Roman dish? you a medieval dish to try. Wow. Wow. Okay, so explain what do you mean by Roman food? 
So this is um, food that would have been eaten by ancient Romans. Um, don't ask me to give you an exact time frame, but it's uh, yes, it's sort of a little bit before Christ and a little bit after Christ. Yep. Go with that. Um, but it's it's basically, I mean, their empire was vast, so they did sort of adapt as they went around different parts of Europe. Um, but they, this is um, the dish I've brought today is. Um, uh, it's a mushroom puree. Um, mushroom I've, I've puree. done this because, uh, well, the fact of the matter is a lot of, through history, we did eat a lot of fruit and vegetables. You may not find recipes for them all the time. And this is some fried pasta to go with it as well. Actually. Fried pasta. Fried oh, pasta. It's well, amazing. it's a type of pasta. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a, so they use a lot, as I say, they use a lot of spices. So this is a mushroom puree with coriander and they didn't have like knives and forks like we have nowadays so actually to eat with these i always compare these um pasta strips as a bit like a roman tortilla chip yeah so um so so, so i've just eaten this mushroom dip yes dip. so tell me what it is so it's quite simple it's it is based on a roman recipe but it's um originally i think they probably would have used leaf coriander instructions in old recipes can be very vague and roman recipes are particularly vague current recipes can be very vague. well indeed um but they um i've used the spice you know the spice rather than the leaves uh, purely because uh, i think sometimes coriander can have some people can have a slightly soapy taste so this is a um puree it's basically mushrooms that have been chopped up very finely. I've put a few wild mushrooms in there because to get the, obviously now I'm using cultivated mushrooms, but mm. they would have used wild mushrooms back in the day. Um, and uh, I've, I've stuck a few herbs in there as well. Just to... is, is the reason why the recipes wouldn't be as recipes as we know it today is because they'd probably just be an aid memoir as opposed to something that you followed? Definitely. Just, just, just to you know, trigger your memory rather than, yeah. than it being a set. So most... Or, or different families might have different quantities yeah. and, you know, but it's just to remind you. Absolutely. So recipes wouldn't have been how they are now. You know, you put it in at X amount of degrees centigrade at this amount yeah. of time. It just it just wasn't like that for recipes. No, it wasn't. And it, they were literally designed, usually most recipe manuals were written to help for like cooks apprentices rather than for domestic cooks. You weren't, you know, if you were just... Joe Bloggs, so to speak, cooking at home, you just cook whatever you could yeah. get hold of. Um, you didn't need a recipe manual to help you with these, uh, with how to, to, the methods or anything like that. You wouldn't have had ovens for starters and things. So, um, so yeah, they were literally there. That's why they're so vague, is, is you often take some mushrooms and mix with some coriander and, uh, you know, you might get it, grind it well and then serve it yeah. forth and that's it. Mm. When you, when you, obviously, you've got, you've got an incredible um, sort of overview of the world of recipes. Do you think there are new recipes coming out, or are we really just, is it really spinning? Uh, I always say there's no original recipe. I mean, I know there's a few chefs out there that do come up with some pretty innovative th things, but uh, generally speaking, that I don't think there's a, an original recipe because someone, somewhere, some, somewhere, someone will have thought of it before. I can almost guarantee it. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm not so much being regurgitated. I mean, I do it myself. I do modern interpretations of historical food um, when I do my supper clubs. So uh, it's. I think really it's just, yeah, it's just what people do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's variations no. on a theme, isn't it? What are those again? They're really nice. Uh, it's called Arta Lagana. It's, um, it's very simple. It's spelt flour with some pepper. They loved pepper in ancient Rome. Um, and uh, a bit of wine 
mixed to a dough, rolled very thinly, and then fried in olive oil. That sounds good. But that's still still served in Italy. Yeah, I mean, similar. yeah, yeah. I think I had it last year. I went to Parma and had it. Mm. Yeah, you're always travelling, you. That's yeah. why she's never on the program. Do you do it on never here. Do you do it on expenses? Well, it's for work. Oh, sorry. I'm learning. <laughs> I want that job. Um, tell me about the supper club. So, as I said, it's really I do modern interpretations of historical food. So each supper will have a historical theme. So I've done Roman food. Uh, I did Roman one last year, and we had dormouse. We didn't actually wasn't actually dormouse, but I found a recipe for like a Roman almost like burger, which I shaped into dormouse shaped patties. Were they eating dormice? Uh, well, well, my guess eating anything. dormice. No, well, did the ancient no, Romans they, they eat that? Yeah, they did eat dormice. But again, it was probably one of those dishes that was served as a, a special treat. I don't what, think what about squirrel? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of squirrel. I would imagine that if they couldn't get dormice, squirrel I would imagine they would have had moved, dorm- Yeah, Human beings would have tried it. Yeah, yeah this is true. Okay. I haven't found any Roman recipes for no. squirrel. When's your, what's the earliest squirrel recipe you found? <laughs> Stop I, it. I don't know actually. Elizabeth Luard wrote, no one's ever book asked you that. Yeah, wrote, me, wrote a good book um, a couple of years ago, um, something to do, and that had a whole section on squirrels. So that's where you need to go. There you go. Yeah. There you go. You learn yeah, something yeah. every time. Um, so, what is um, Ollie tucking into now? It looks like porridge. It, yes. Yeah, so, this is actually um, a medieval rice pudding. Um, mm-hmm. And it's um, this one has been made with almond milk. Uh, so it's got a, the, again, the recipe was very vague. It was basically take some rice, take some almond milk, seethe it well and serve it forth. <laughs> so, but the, um, a lot of historians would have assumed that they would have included spices because yeah. spices were so important in medieval cookery because sort of it was... Mace and nutmeg and stuff Yeah, like that. so that's got a bit of cinnamon, had a cinnamon stick cooked with it and a bit of nutmeg. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it was, they ate an awful lot of food... They had an awful lot of days in the year where they weren't allowed to eat meat and dairy products. It wasn't just Lent and the Advent fast. Really? So, yeah, there was, uh, I don't know how, I couldn't quote the exact number of days, but there's an awful lot of days in the Catholic calendar, historically speaking, where you weren't allowed to eat uh, meat or um, dairy products. Uh, you were allowed, they ate a lot of um, st- what they called stockfish, which was salt cod. But it was... Um, Things like this almond milk, particularly, although now we think of it as being quite a modern innovation, but it was actually almond milk ruled the roost, so to speak, during sort of the medieval period and through the Tudor wow. period. I didn't realise that. I definitely did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So you thought it was a new thing. Nothing new, is there? Really? Let's face it. No, but that's what. But that, yeah, it's all about execution. I always say, you know, yeah. it's, it's about how well you execute an idea and whether you make it relevant. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, you could market something well enough and use some keywords from twenty twenty. And like a food that was from 2,000 years ago will be trendy and new and yeah. millennial. Yeah. There's definitely some stuff, though, that I wouldn't want to eat now that they used oh, yeah. to eat. Dormice. <laughs> Dormice, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd have a go at that. Well, I went to Iceland on holiday over Christmas. They have puffin. Did they? Eat puffin, yeah. How was the puffin? I didn't manage to get to eat any. It was too I had whale. I had quite a lot of whale. Minky whale's lovely. Really? It's like fillet steak. It's amazing. Is that, it's okay? Like Is that okay? fillet steak, yeah. Is that okay? No, they, they only do sustainable. You, you, I mean, they're, they're really environmentally sustainable in Iceland. So, yeah, a bit minky whales. But I, I didn't manage to get to eat any puffin. 
Well, I'm not worried about it. Are you worried about it? As long as it's been done sustainably. I don't know. I mean, that you, I mean you eat squirrel. I, you can't. I, no, no, no. But I'm, I'm thinking of animals that my, my son, who's obsessed with animals, is like, oh, but puffins are cute and whales are So cute. are rabbits. But I know. So are squirrels. I, so are pigs. No, they're not. They, they, yeah. they steal the nuts off my bird table. <laughs> um, Holly, in terms of um, the sort of independent food uh, sector... Um, they don't really, I don't think they really go into sort of historical stuff as much or all the history of things, do they normally? Uh, I haven't make really a thing, seen it, but I'm sure, of it. I mean, they'd be happy to. I'm sure it's exactly the kind of thing that they'd be interested in. Well, because well, if, I, if I think consumers are really interested in where food comes from, but yeah, also definitely. the history of it. And they, we tend to home in on geographically where food comes from and sourcing as opposed to how we managed to get that recipe in the first yeah. place. We don't and tend I think, to go on about that, do we? I think there'll be the regional delicacies mm. that you know are going to be popular and the history of those kind of products will be known mm. but I think in terms of exploration of uh, if historical foods I don't think that really happens very much but I'm definitely keen to do something in the mag on it now it's yeah. really interesting and yeah like you said there is the market there um, people just don't really think of it maybe mm. we're not trained to think why we don't. in that kind of way. No. Um, Zeran Wilson, you, your uh, blog, uh, Bitten and Written, yes. um, do, do you sometimes hark back onto the historic stuff or do you just focus on the now? I do like to weave a bit of history in. So um, when I'm, I wrote about a restaurant, um, Sorrel, um, down in Dorking. I'd never been to Dorking before and uh, it was interesting kind of digging back behind and just seeing what else I can hook in talking about food because that can get a bit boring if you're just talking about dishes. Mm. Um, so um, there's a lot... get some backdrop something. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or if I can weave in a bit of historical figures if I've discovered that Christopher Marlowe was down there or or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's good to have another hook rather than just the food itself, which I know um, some people complain that writers like A.A. Gill and, and, and Giles go on a, a big ramble and then bring then in the food afterwards. Them. But mm. if you've been doing it for... 20, 30 years, you've got to amuse yourself, I suppose, as well as, as, well as the readers. How do you, um, uh, I, I mean, you know, with, with, with your writing, Sam, I presume if you're writing about historical things, you, you know, you, you sort of don't have a viewpoint in a way. It's, it's you're, you're trying to bring that to life and explain how it happened and where it's from and all that sort of stuff and, and make it interesting. Um, but how do you draw the line, Zaron, in terms of... Because A.A. Gill, you know, could be pretty damn rude. Um, I yes. suppose Giles Corrin quite often. Yes, he divides that... opinion. Jay Rayner. Yep. Jay Rayner. One think... of your favourites, Ollie? Or... I think he writes beautifully, but I, think yes. I, 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 I start from a position which goes, no chef wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to irritate my customers. Yes. And I, and I think there are bad meals occasionally that are created for many reasons, and some could be ingredients, some could be changed in kitchen staff, some could be stuff just goes wrong. And okay, some I accept you pay a lot of money and the meal disappoints. That's bad, and and you know there's social media and stuff that makes it difficult. But I think, I think trashing a kitchen, really trashing a kitchen, you know, when you couldn't do it yourself, by the way. And well, and and, and you know, look, I, there are you know, I, you know, being serious for a second, there are a lot of mental health issues in the in the kitchen establishment. There are a lot of people who are actually quite you know, I'm going to say fragile personalities, 
And I certainly know chefs who've been absolutely brutalized by some of these reviews. Yeah. And they've destroyed their restaurants and their savings and everything with it. And, and, I, and I think still. there's a nastiness to some of the stuff that I question. When there's a really negative review in the mainstream press, it's it's usually about the ego of the writer, isn't it? That's I think so. That's what it is. Um, so so how hmm. do you treat um, something that you well, think is below par? Or maybe they're, they've just not quite got the point I, of what they should be I, I I was selling wine to restaurants and got under the skin of the restaurant world through doing that. And then I worked in a restaurant, front of house, pouring wine. So when I started writing, I was coming from a position of empathy and really understanding how bloody hard it is to Mm. even get up for a a third double shift in a row. And I wanted to write about food and restaurants and because it's my platform and I've got the choice to champion the best things, um, there's too much good stuff out there for me to get all het up and write negative stuff. And also because I was coming from the industry, I didn't, you know, it was, a, it was a bit awkward when people that you know. And so I had the freedom to um, to really talk up the good stuff. And and if, 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 if I didn't like anywhere, I've written a couple of negative reviews, but that's only been for... But there's a way of doing that. You don't, you know, nobody's expecting you to say something nice when actually the blooming thing yeah. was awful. And but, but but I think there is a way of doing it, isn't there? Yeah, it's a lot easier to do it when it's not a, a husband and wife or a small independent operation. So leave the slating reviews for the big corporate mass chains which maybe deserve a bit of a kicking and maybe you can justify that I, it. That, I have to say, I, I have written, one of the only really nasty reviews I've ever written was about food I, I got to at Wembley where I went, uh, we yeah. went to a concert and I was just given this absolutely appalling food produced by Sodexa. And it was despicable. Yeah. It was absolutely despicable and it was overpriced. Well, that's about and laziness and greediness, yeah. isn't it? it and, and, and it was not the fault of the people in the kitchen. It was the, it was the quality of the ingredients being purchased by that organisation and that irritated me. And that's fair game. So, and I, so that's, that's, yeah. the only, that's the only box I think you can attack on for, for me, personally. Mm. And, and what other areas, uh, you know, are you happy to write about? Well, wine is a big part because um, I came into the restaurant world through selling wine to restaurants, um, working in a wine shop. Um, so I, I write about wine as well. Um, so I write for Noble Rock magazine. Um, got a little thing coming out in Waitrose Food Mag um, in the February issue about Pinot Noir. So wine has always been a big part of, of everything. That's I, a shame, isn't it? I do as well, yeah. Get sent the odd sample. Um, yeah, it's fun. Good. And um, uh, in terms of historic stuff, Sam, drink, I presume drink is as old as the hills. Alcohol has always been there, has it? Yeah. It's not a modern phenomenon. It's definitely not a modern phenomenon. I mean, we didn't drink things like water for a very long time. So it was always... (laughs) Sorry, so when do we start drinking water? Uh, well, it's, it's hard not, to get. It's hard to get water that you can drink. It, it was, yeah. It was to do with the fact that it, yeah. was, it would make you sick, basically, because there was no there was no delineation between where you dumped your waste, your bodily waste, uh, and uh, where you drew your water and washing and all the rest of it. So, um, historically speaking, we drank beer, but they would brew different strengths of beer. So you would have things like small beer, which was what the kids would drink, which is very, very, very weak beer. Um, but, right up to the sort of yeah, blow your socks off sort of stuff. But the, but people actually drinking water 
I mean, you wouldn't. People oh, used to just. No, but so what so, period? But, but so when do we start? But we're drinking? talking. We're talking about cities uh, in particular, and and yeah. people who've come off the land and are working in. Yeah. Cities. I, I mean, I think. Can't get hold of water. So no, no, really I get, hard. I get, I get the thought. Yeah. I, I mean, Sutton's Wells is probably the biggest place in terms of water, wasn't it? Because there's an underground. Right. You know, it was a well, and yeah. and and that's where the water board set up in London because that's the the biggest source of water. But but it's just contaminated mm. constantly. I mean, you know, all of it, wasn't it? Really. Yeah. I mean, I think if I think back to my own grandmother she would never drink a glass of water she would only ever have she'd drink tea i mean tea or coffee and that was it there was it's been boiled i don't know whether it was that it was just i just know how she'd grown up i don't think it was a i don't by then i mean she only died this year uh, last year and she was 102 wow but yeah she was very old when she died but she'd grown up through a period where you would have been able to get sanitized water it wasn't that it was uh, unhealthy i think it was just Questionable. I think it's just that's just what you did. Her generation did. You drank tea, and that was it. And yet we're obsessed by now, aren't we? We're all you know we're all trying to drink two liters a day, and it's. See, I don't drink water. I drink loads. That's that's because I haven't been brought up to drink it. I think. Yeah. But I think it's a Ollie's right. It's a modern thing. I tried to. Yeah. 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 Well, because of the it's part of the whole wellness healthiness. So the opposite of what it used to be, isn't it? Both so. Hmm. So going back to um, your your amazing blog, um, mm. any other particular topics, any trends that you're seeing at the moment? Well, we are still in the throes of pasta being rediscovered in London. With, pasta? Uh, many, many, many different restaurants, yeah. different iterations Padella. of pasta. Padella kind of started it all yeah. really in terms of right. suddenly um, we're all eating a lot more pasta in shiny new places. Um, Banconi is another one as well. Yeah. Lena Stores, which is open just yeah. around the corner from uh, where we are here today, King's Cross. Um, dumplings have had yeah. many, many rebirths and refurbs from different parts of the world. So we've we've seen a lot of that. Um, What's that great one in, in Covent Garden? That's the the chain by the by the big church. The church. Oh, Din Tai Fun. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, Din Tai Fun. Yeah, it's, I mean that's like a happiness place. They've got a massive worldwide uh, <laughs> fan base. Restaurants all over the world. They're about to open their second one. That's in near where you were. It is. I haven't been. I have to say, I haven't. I haven't been hitting up places like Kiln and yes, well, Paradise. And I just had lunch at Kiln because oh, I so good. I've helped with their wine list from the from the start. Um, so Kiln and Smoking Goat. So I've oh. just come from lunch there with a bit of ox heart larp. Um, some smoked mackerel carrots. So good. What Thai is restaurant. Ox heart larp. Ox heart. Yep, yeah, just min, min, minced up like like mince. So mm. uh, it's like and that's a, a larp. Yeah, Laos Cambodia border. So it can be with fish or or, or, or with meat. So today's was ox heart, um, monkfish curry. Uh, yeah, so I've still got those flavours uh, rattling around at the moment. <laughs> well, luckily I'm sitting next to you. I can't smell them, so that's good. <laughs> Bet you can. Yeah, so no, like no, that. No. So pasta dumplings. Um, yeah. Well, since Smoking Goat and Kiln uh, and some others, um, Thai, Thai food has uh, Somsar yeah. as well has had a kind of a reinvigoration in a in a in a modern modern sense. And now we're seeing uh, uh, Malaysian food come to the fore. So a friend of mine, Mandu, who runs Sambel Shiok, brilliant little laksa bar. So we put together a smart little list of German recipes. Hey, is that the one on Holloway Road? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. opposite where I'm about yeah. to move to. Yeah. So I was able to indulge my uh, obsession. That's a very nice place. Obsession with German Riesling. We were talking about uh, Riesling with, uh, <laughs> with with Sam and Paul earlier. Um, and uh, since I've uh, relocated to Folkestone, I was just chatting to uh, near me. Chatting to Sue because she mentioned uh, Hyde and Fox. Yes, in, I uh, did. In Saltwood in Hythe. Very good. 
Well, Sue lives uh, down yeah, that way. Yeah, recommend that. And because um, there's a small Nepalese community there, because the Gurkha base is, is based there, I've mm. started to discover Nepalese food, which I didn't really have That's much great. idea of. Oh. So now I'm obsessed with Momo dumplings. Oh, they're amazing. And uh, <laughs> Nepalese tarkari curries and their version of pakoras and it's like walking a very fun line between Indian influence and a bit of Chinese with their chow mein noodle dishes. So, um, yeah, so... But it's pretty good down down. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Down where we are. Very lucky. Kent side, yeah. So I'm going to completely and utterly change the subject now. So um, uh, Paul Collins from Exbury. Um, all of these restaurants presumably will just cook natural food and they probably won't add much to it. But if you're processing food and you're doing stuff on a larger scale, sometimes you might lose some amazing essence of the colour. Yeah. Your guys manufacture this stuff to put that back. Have I got that correct? Yeah, yeah. So our, our um, um, mission is to really make food and drink on the shelf more colourful, more appetising, more appealing. Uh, of course, you can differentiate with colour. It's one of the most important sensory attributes that really is key in why people would choose a certain product. Because you look at it first and, and, and you, make assumptions. Yeah, really. you know the old adage, we eat with our eyes, and it's mm. absolutely true. Um, the taste comes uh, later. I was interested in the comment uh, Sam was making about the history. because Did they I, used to do that, Sam? Did yeah, so Paul, I was discussing with Paul how I'd, um, I needed to make a green colouring, and I was following a Victorian recipe and yeah. using spinach. And the whole time I was like, this is just not going to work. It's going to end up some really horrible brownie khaki colour. But it was it was amazing. I mean, I was blown away. I mean, it was quite laborious, but it was, yeah, the end results were absolutely fantastic. So people have always used some type of colourings. Yeah. I mean, I guess cochineal is the obvious example for the red colour, uh, which is crushed beetles, um, but um, which was... I think I, I couldn't say how far back it goes, but it was certainly widely used. Mm. And, and actually today I've been reading about chocolate. I'm doing some research into chocolate and um, originally hot chocolate was um, coloured with in this sort of going back to Mexico. Asciote, asciote, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, that, um, yeah that's uh, anato is a... Anato, that's yeah, it. Uh, yeah, anato, yeah. So it's a, a red, sort of got the red colour um, or used to dye their hot chocolate red. So, so Paul, the company is is decades and decades old. So, so um, again, you you are taking something that people have actually always done. It's not an artificial thing doing this. Is no, it? it's it's, it's the, historic. It's the complete opposite to artificial. Mm. It's at colour how nature intends it to be. So mm. we're taking the colour out of fruit and vegetable and edible algae um, to deliver that colour that we, so, we see around us into food and drink. So I've got a tiny little jar here that says yellow cloudy colouring food, which is which is one of your one of your products. How how do your guys understand what ingredients to use in order to get some amazing colour? Because st- because it is quite a laborious process, but how do you know what it, things to choose? Uh, to yeah, I mean it's quite a laborious process. It's also done on quite a large scale. So we take care of the uh, agriculture. So we grow the fruit and vegetable. Well, so the, okay. the one you're talking about, Sue, is actually produced from orange carrots, and it's which as simple as that. Which me, is the yeah. carrots I've actually brought along today. So they're the same orange carrots that you could buy in the supermarket. We process them with going back to your point about the uh, importance of water. We just use water. 
And taking Sam's point of Victorian simplicity, that's exactly what we do. We take some orange carrots, we take some water, we cook them up, we process them, we crush them, we juice them, and then we concentrate them non-thermally, so thereby we can retain the colour, and we make a beautiful orange colour from orange carrots that you can put into carbonated drinks, juices, smoothies. So, so I might make yeah. a, um, I might make a carbonated carrot. I don't know, drink martini. Let's say. And uh, and unfortunately, the way that I've done it means that there's not much colour there. Doesn't yeah. mean to say there's anything wrong with it. It's just that, that, that a part of that process means I've lost a bit of colour. Yeah. This allows you to add something completely natural and and just allow somebody to go, oh yeah, that's carrot because I can see it's orangey or yellowy or something. Exactly. I think the other principle that we follow is you use the term when you described it, it's a colouring food. That's exactly what mm. it is. So if you would take that same bottle, you can actually eat it with a spoon because it's a colour that is a food as opposed to Go a colour that is an additive. <laughs> so it will taste like carrot. So yeah. I'm holding, to try and bring this to life for radio, I'm holding a little bottle which is about the size of because we always go back to alcohol, like a small gin sampler you'd get like on a plane. Miniature. A miniature, miniature thank yep. you. Uh, how many carrots are in this bottle? That's a very good question. Honestly, I couldn't tell you, but it would be more than you would imagine. Uh, we process thousands of tonnes of carrot, uh, hundreds of thousands of tonnes, and we produce in the end 8,500 uh, 8, tonnes of concentrate, which then goes into, uh, if you take the average dose level, would give 35 billion servings of food and drink. <laughs> so to give you an idea, and it's global, uh, to give you an idea of scale. Um, but going back to the point that it's it's understandable to the consumer. Yeah. It, it's not a chemistry no, proposition. No, no. It's not an E, one, two, three, no, four, no, no. whatsoever. It's simply a so carrot concentrate. Why, why would you not use natural food colouring? Is it down to price? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, it is a natural food colouring. No, I mean, this is, no, but, if, why, but the manufacturers but are, your... using, that are not using natural food colourings, is it down, are they doing that because of price? Uh, no, no, I think, um, you know, it, it, in business there's this concept of clean label, sometimes taken as clear label, which means understandable to the consumer. So the reason our customers choose our uh, um, proposition is because it's exactly that. So you label it as a food ingredient as opposed to a food additive. But so, why? But why are people using f food additives that that that, that, that are colourings? Is it just because it's cheaper and quicker and easier? And yeah, is that why they're doing it? Yeah, I think it's just part of the evolution. Which is a right. point I was making about Sam's discussion. If you go back not so long, uh, mm. in, certainly in my lifetime, back to the 1970s, food and drink on the shelf was full of. Yeah, it was glow-in-the-dark, full of E-numbers and artificial colours. Sunny delight. Yellow. Sunny delight. Exactly. And these have now, what's amazing, in, you know, in less than one generation, these have all been taken away. If you go to the supermarket today, you will not see this uh, in the UK or in Europe. Mm. Um, and that's, that's you know, these have been taken by these things. Um, Very good. Now, I've got a trend report that you've given me, which is called Shades of Aqua. Yeah. Now, I was always told that blue is not a good food colouring because because somehow naturally we're put off things that look blue. Uh, but you've got a trend report here. Yeah, yeah. We, is this blue coming back then? Because I've started to see some blue drinks of you and things like that. Yeah, blue algae. Yeah. Spirulina and things like that. Yeah. 
Oh, so you were talking about mushroom lattes last week, and now we're talking about blue hmm. drinks. I mean, I don't know what is happening in the home <laughs> counties, but it's clearly London is is lagging behind. Well, no, this, this is really interesting, I think, because because blue so, is quite um, photogenic, and because we're not used to seeing blue foods, it can stand out, can't it? Yeah, I, I think with the colour choice, you can be um, you know you can be in harmony with your colour, or you can be disruptive. You can do something different that consumers don't expect. And I think uh, blue is, I think the point you're making, Sue, is that blue is not the traditional colour you would associate no. with food. Um, but nevertheless, there are a number of blue foods. And our uh, what we do every year is we uh, identify what we, th- we think is going to be the colour trend of the year for the following year. And we this year we've t- gone with shades of aqua. So it's it's blue, blue green, or green, and these fit with lots of um, um, you know, uh, lots of insight um, that makes it relevant, and you mm. can use it cross category. So you'll see blue smoothies, blue drinks, blue juices, blue yogurts. See, Sarah, or, or you need to write top. about this. Blue this food, yeah. Blue is the new thing this the new, year. The new black. The blue, yeah. Blue's the new black. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Um, <laughs> Sam, have people eaten blue foods? I always thought it was something in the human psyche that is like blue is doo-doo, not supposed to have that. Or is it, I, can't, I just you can't think of many natural blue foods. Well, you get blue corn, so you get True. Uh, in Mexico, so you get blue, you can make blue tortillas effectively. Yeah. Mm. Um, are, blue, are there blue potatoes? There or are blue purple potatoes. Blue, yeah. yeah, I don't know how, whether they are... Uh, readily available well i don't know whether they're a recent development in terms of potato um growing um i think you're right people don't historically haven't eaten blue foods although again going back to the medieval cookery they were very keen on coloring their foods and not come across blue so much but uh, certainly using things like saffron and sanders to color things sort of red and um yellow mm. um and the green as i was discussing with paul earlier with from spinach so um, colourings have certainly been used, but yeah, blue, I'm not so sure about. I'm not sure where you would, what they, what, what do you use as a natural to get the natural blue colour then? Yeah, the main source of the blue is, um, as was said earlier, is actually spirulina. It's an edible, it? edible algae, which gives this blue colour. And if, if you think of colour uh, science, if you take blue and you mix with yellow, then you have green. So if you have blue, you can have green and then you can have shades of aqua by just changing the proportions. Ooh, um, fascinating. Well, um, to end the show, I've just opened a packet of gummies. I've eaten the blue one. <laughs> Have you? Well Is that a blue you. one? There are two of them. Oh, yeah, it's a blue one. Uh, no. I went straight in there? and had the blue oh, yeah. one. It tastes um, blue. Now, I, I think you've done this just to demonstrate, Paul, that, that I presume gummies don't actually have a colour generally uh, in, in the way that they're made, and therefore you have to add colour. Exactly. There are many foods that don't have a colour, um, and gummies is a perfect example. If you didn't add something, they'd just all be transparent, translucent, colourless, mm. and they would be flavoured, but they would be a little bit disappointing in terms of you know, the um, eating um, experience. If you bring in the colour you can really bring them to life, which is hopefully what we've done. I'm going to eat a blue one. Yeah, I mean, that packet just kept producing them, like never-ending. Mm, very nice. Um, so, so again, a, a manufacturer would come to you and saying, you know, I'm making gummies or I'm making something, whatever, um, and then you would help them choose the very specific shade of, let's say, orange or red or whatever, to, to help them get the appearance that they're, they're after. Exactly. Uh, we, we have And that. taste as well, a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 our colouring food comes from the raw material, so it has a taste of the raw material, but it's it's highly concentrated, so the amount you use is relatively low. Yeah. So the manufacturer will also add a flavour, which could be a complementary flavour or a contrasting flavour. So you could make blue taste like blueberry or you could make it taste like lemon, whatever you like, and you can have an experience that you know can confuse or can be in harmony. So yeah. it's... It, it comes back to the sensory power of colour that it can really... It, and I think going back to what I said earlier about the importance of Instagram, I think appearance of food mm. in the last recent few years has taken on huge significance compared to before because now it's all about what does it look like and then what does it taste like, what is the mm. texture. Yeah, agreed. So and again, for independent retailers, Holly, making stuff look good is... is Massive, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, the vegetable areas, the you know, the way you lay things out has a massive impact on your sales. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people eat with their eyes first, don't they? So it's a, and it's a really big selling tool. Things need to look good if if shops want them to, people to buy them. Mm. Um, can I just, something um, that Morgane Gay, the food futurologist, told me a little while ago about colour. Um, she was saying how... Um, every few years, like there's a new colour that comes to the fore. So a few years ago, it was green. So you'd be getting green smoothies, green tortillas, you know, anything green. And that would be representing nature and freshness and things. And then she said that we then went into black and black represented the earth. And, and so I'm just wondering what, you know, if blue is the next colour that's that's coming, what that's representing, like oceans and... Despair, you know, the just, oceans... <laughs> Can oh, I keep it positive? Sorry, I think sorry, the, the colour is what Paul said. I think it's aqua as opposed yeah. to blue. That, 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 yeah. that sort of... I think the association you would typically make with, with colour is either an emotional association, which could be something... For blue, would be something like calming or relaxing. It could also be freshness. And then you, if you bring it to culinary terms, it would be what they would call ocean garden. So this is exploiting oceans... Mm resource and foods and i think seaweed is going to become a much bigger thing in the coming year so as of last week funnily enough yeah and go. of course if you put seaweed in it's mm. when you process it industrially it's not going to be quite as green as you would mm. like it to be See. so you would need to add something back to make it uh, green and that's where we would come in and help mm, fascinating so just to end how many colors do you have we have um <laughs> Well, we have the whole rainbow. Uh, yeah. In terms of numbers of colours in our portfolio, there's 450 or something like this. Wow. Because, I mean, you know, to go back to the point, there isn't a colour that doesn't yet exist. All colours exist. The only thing we can do is nuance them and then produce them from fruit and vegetable. So make sure their origin is uh, consumer acceptable. Fantastic. Well, a whole world I didn't know about. Amazing new world. I mean, mm. it's funny. I mean, these, these are sort of the hidden stuff that sits behind oh. massive food production and i think what's really interesting and exciting is is that you know this is the right way to be flavoring food coloring. and coloring food and ultimately that's kind of you know if, we, if we're going to go down more of a plant-based you know more sustainable route this is obviously a, a key driver in it uh, absolutely and um yeah and, and related to that we take great effort because we grow all of our raw materials on, on huge yeah, scale, fabulous, uh, yeah. agricultural expertise. So then we can take care of sustainability. Because mm -hmm. behind the collar, there's then a backstory. 
you know, which consumers, you know, well, modern, know. modern consumers want to know. Where does it come from? Does mm. it fit my values of sustainability, carbon footprint, environment? Yeah. Um, so we take care of all of this. Well, that's great. Well, we'll make sure there's a link from the Futop website. So if anybody's interested in, in you know, they're making products or interested in that, we're, yeah, we can, you can find out where it is. Um, and over to you, Sam. Uh, next thing for you I know you do these supper clubs uh, you're quite interested in Roman is there any other thing that you're thinking so you I'm, yeah home in on well I'm actually doing a plant-based one based on historical recipes um, which was quite easy to put together as I said because there were vast periods of the year where you couldn't eat meat and that's at the end of February and I'm also working on my first book oh which is very on good gingerbread gingerbread mm. yes I can't remember the last time I had gingerbread you. I think my kids made some at Christmas. Probably. Mm. Yeah. And, so um, where is the supper club? Just so people know. So, so the supper club is in Haywards Heath um, in Sussex. Mm. And um, Zaren Wilson, yes. written and written. Mm. If you do want to read something good, because there are some pretty useless food blogs, I have to say. There's some pretty horrible ones um, and, and not very good quality. Uh, we'd recommend written and written. I Interesting stuff. Like um, my pals um, Ed Smith, Rocket and Squash. He's a very yep. good recipe writer, food blogger. Um, he's now worked on the Borough Market Cookbook. He's very good. I like Chris Popel, Cheese and Biscuits. He always gets 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 up and down the country and uh, likes to give his honest opinions and pictures of his food as well. Um, so uh, those are my two Your favorite. favorite. And I, yeah, and I've mm. I've known them since the early days of Twitter, two thousand and. 11 when it all really kicked off and uh, it's interesting to see how now Instagram has moved in to that space mm. and it's it's all kind of changed a little bit mm. um, but uh, there's a lot of information out there so it's kind of trying to trying to wade through it. Mm, um, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Highly recommended and well done on winning this year. It's Thank very you very much. Um, of course, if you want to also read about stuff, you should be going on to... Speciality Food Magazine website as well, shouldn't Please. you, Holly? Yeah, specialityfoodmagazine.com. Mm. And particular themes that are coming up this year for you guys, for the independent retailers? Oh, big topic. Uh, um, I guess just a continuation of the kind of provenance and people are wanting to trust uh, the people. I mean, especially food and drink, if it's something that people are putting in their bodies, they want to know what that is. And um, I think trust is probably trust. the biggest of yeah, just Trust continuation of the kind of provenance and traceability, authenticity, understanding the stories behind things. Yeah, and if you're a retailer, you should be really, really homing in on that, I think, shouldn't mm. you? Making uh, big points of it. Yeah. Um, good. Well, thank you to our guests, Sam Bilton, Zeron Wilson and Paul Collins. You've been listening to the Food Talk Show. Uh, we've been syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield for ages. Ages and ages as well as being available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. Thank you to my fellow presenters, Ollie Lloyd. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you. That's really made me really think about food colouring, actually. Really, it's not something I'd really think No, I hadn't about. either. Um, and um, Holly Shackleton, uh, editor of Speciality Food Magazine. If you know someone doing something groundbreaking in the food sector, please get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk or via Speciality Food Magazine website. I hope you have a good week. Bye.